welcome to Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. Today, we get back to our series entitled The Family Survival Kit with a message from Pastor Roy on homosexuality, right or wrong. Pastor Roy will be looking at homosexuality in light of the gospel story that we see throughout the entirety of Scripture. We encourage you to open up your Bibles and follow along with Pastor Roy. And to be able to celebrate the 4th of July and another anniversary of our country. And I'm reminded of the words as our memory verse, Proverbs 14:34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And in light of all that's happened in our world with the Supreme Court ruling and the direction of our country, we need to be much in prayer for our leadership, for our churches, for pastors, leaders. You also found a piece of paper in your box, for those of you that have a church mailbox, that we will be making a church constitution change. We'll be voting on that next Sunday uh, in light of everything that's happened in our world that uh, we feel like we have to revise our statement uh, to be definitive that marriage is between a man and a woman. And it's detailed in several paragraphs and uh, we will be putting that into our constitution. We will also not um, allow any pastor to conduct a same-sex marriage here uh, or allow one to be here. Um, what does that mean in the future? I, I don't know. Uh, but I do know that God has given us his word to stand on and we cannot go wrong when we do that. The reason I'm bringing this message today on homosexuality, right or wrong, is because it is the hottest topic on the face of America. Um, it is the most talked about, tweeted about, uh, Facebooked about, um, articles, I mean, you name it, it's talk shows, it's uh, everywhere. I even did a, a, just a quick Google search, I typed in the word homosexuality, and it came up to 12,900,000 hits. Um, so it is a very big topic. Because of the largeness of the topic, it's probably going to take me a couple of weeks to deal uh, with it. Uh, next week, I hope to bring some more practical things and how we live out the reality of dealing with people in our culture. But I can't get all that in today uh, because we're starting off with homosexuality right or wrong. And the reason I say right or wrong is because you cannot be a fence sitter. This is an issue that will not allow you to sit on the fence. Well, I think it's okay. I'm not sure. You know, maybe you're not sure. And hopefully today you'll be sure after we look at the scripture. But you cannot sit on the fence long. You have to cast your vote. Either it's right or it's wrong. Um, I want to share some sources that I use to help me with this uh, message. What does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? This is a book by Kevin DeYoung. Just came out this year. Excellent. About 150 pages. Uh, he addresses the topic very well, uh, biblically. And uh, so I'm pulling some resources from that, uh, as well as a book called Same-Sex Marriage by Sean McDowell and John Stone Street uh, that was published in 2014. Uh, in that book, there's uh, some questions that they address that we'll talk about next week. 
uh, some of the practical aspects. So these are two excellent uh, resources that I would uh, highly recommend. Also a couple articles, Homosexuality, the Biblical Christian View. Uh, I didn't get a date on when that was published, didn't see it. And another one here, A Christian Perspective on Homosexuality by William Lane Craig. The other one did not definitively say who uh, the author was. Um, uh, but the biblical Christian view one, uh, the first one there is found on Bible.org. Um, you can find that one there. Let me say this at the beginning. Homosexuality, here's how I'm describing it. By the way, if you have small children here and they're not out, they can leave unless you want them here uh, because of the content of our discussion today. Homosexuality, I'm referring to sexual relations between people of the same sex. So with that, I'm going to say these things. These are all together. Homosexual activity is what we're talking about today. Homosexual behavior, same thing. Homosexual practice and same-sex sexual intimacy. That's what I'm talking about. I am not referring as much to orientation. I will make a reference about orientation, but that's not primarily what we're dealing with today. We're specifically dealing with homosexual behavior, activity, practice, because that's what the Bible clearly condemns. Clearly. And we have to go back to that uh, to see what it says. I believe the Bible clearly teaches that same-sex sexual intimacy is a sin. Um, and that's a quote even out of Kevin DeYoung's book, and I liked it so well, I said, I'm just going to use it. <laughs> because I believe the same thing. We need to answer a legitimate question, and that is this, is there such a thing as right and wrong? Because we just said, is homosexuality right or wrong? So then there's a deeper question, is there such a thing as right and wrong? And then if there is, who decides who is right and who is wrong? Because that's always the big debate, right? Who are you to say this is wrong? Who are you to say this is right? Uh, where does that come from? So we've got to really go back and decide is there such thing as right and wrong? Some would argue there's no right and wrong. Everyone is free to choose whatever they want. Whatever a person chooses is right for them. They would argue that no one has the right or the authority to tell them that something is right or wrong. However, most people would agree on these things, that murder is wrong. I think most people would say murder, to take the life of another person you wouldn't have the right to do that without punishment. They would say it's wrong. Even if they felt it was okay in their heart doesn't make it right. Most people would also agree that rape, incest, torture, and child abuse is wrong. I mean, the general public would outcry that that is wrong, absolutely wrong. In fact, when it comes to child abuse, they will actually imprison, separate, a child abuser from the rest of the prison because the prisoners hate that person so much. They even make a distinction. So we would say that these things are wrong. Many people think of right and wrong not as matter... Well, let me just go here before I get ahead of myself. How do we determine the rightness or wrongness of these actions? Many people think of right and wrong not as matters of fact, but as matters of taste. For example, there isn't any objective fact that broccoli tastes good. There's no objective fact that broccoli tastes good. 
It tastes good to some people, but tastes bad to others. It may taste bad to you, but it tastes good to me. People think it's the same with moral values. Something may seem wrong to you, but right to me, there isn't any real right and wrong. It's just a matter of opinion. If there is no God, then these people would be absolutely correct. Because in the absence of God, there would be no right and wrong. In the absence of God, everything would be relative. So what distinguishes between something being right and wrong is the God of the universe. He's the one that decides. He is the one who has put moral laws in place to govern his people, the peoples of the earth. And so we have to go back. So the Christian would say, the Bible tells us what God's will is. And what is right and what is wrong is based on his commands in Scripture. So then we would have to go into the Scripture and say, what is God's commands? What does he say? And go from there. Without God, who is to say that one's culture's values are better than another's? And who is to say who is right and wrong? If there is no God, there is no divine law giver, and then there is no moral law. There's no real right and wrong. Right and wrong would just be human customs and laws would vary from society to society. So if God does not exist, neither does right and wrong. Anything goes, including homosexuality. So one of the best ways to defend, listen, one of the best ways to defend the legitimacy of the homosexual lifestyle is to become an atheist. You have to say that God doesn't exist because if, an, if a person in a homosexual lifestyle says that there is a God and he does exist, then we have to go to his word and say, what does his word say? And they have to be confronted with the truth. And then what are they going to do with it? Just as we all are confronted with the truth about any sin, how do we handle it? So the homosexual will say, who are you to say that homosexuality is wrong? To which we would come back and ask a question and say, who are you to say that homosexuality is right? Again, we come back to the word of God and the God of the universe. It cannot be up to me. It cannot be up to them. It cannot be up to the culture to decide. It has to be up to what does God say. So we have to find out what God thinks. Now let me ask another question here as we move forward. How does homosexuality fit into the gospel story? Because you see, the Bible is not primarily written as a treatise on homosexuality. That's not why the Bible was given to us, to give us a treatise on that or any other particular sin. What is the gospel story? It is primarily concerned about the story of Jesus Christ, his life, his birth, his death, his burial, his resurrection. That's what the gospel story is all about. So in that, we come to church on Sunday to worship Christ, to sing about Christ, to pray to Christ, to honor Christ, to glorify Christ. What is the gospel story? It's all about glorifying Christ, is it not? That's what it's all about. And in that process, we learn about the things that displease Christ, dishonor Christ, called sin, and how we should separate ourselves from it. 
The gospel story also, though, goes on to tell us something else that's important. And what is that? That Christ is coming again. And when he comes, he will judge the living and the dead. And if those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ will live forever with God in his new creation through the atoning work of Christ on the cross, if those who are not born again and do not believe in Christ and do not turn from their sinful practices will face eternal punishment and the just wrath of God in hell, then homosexuality is important in the gospel story. And here's why. Because the Bible says that homosexual behavior is sexual immorality. And sexual immorality will not get entrance into heaven. So it fits into the whole gospel story that I am concerned that a person is lost and separated from God because of their sexual immorality, whether it's homosexuality, adultery, fornication, it doesn't matter. All sexual immorality separates us from God. God does not allow sin into heaven. Therefore, a sexually immoral person will not have entrance into heaven. That's my greatest concern. And so to speak the truth in love, I have to tell them what the Bible says. So here's what the Bible says. Revelation 21.8. But the cowardly, I find it interesting, he says the cowards are listed first. The people are even afraid to stand for Christ. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, look, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. In the light of the gospel story, the sexually immoral person is in jeopardy of his eternal soul. Is that important? It's important to me. And it should be important to all of us so that we can talk to them and say, well, what does the Scripture say? Here's what we're going to be judged by, the Scripture. So the Bible is very clear on the people who are going to be cast into hell, and it includes the sexually immoral. So within what constitutes sexual immorality in God's mind has everything to do with the storyline of Scripture. So here's, the, here's another question. Is homosexuality activity a sin that must be repented of, forsaken and forgiven, or given the right context and commitment, can we consider same-sex sexual intimacy a blessing worth celebrating and solemnizing? That's the question we need to answer. It is not a question that dominates the pages of Scripture, but it is in the gospel story. And we need to deal with it. So here we go. God's created divine order for sexuality. Here's where we have to go. What was God's created divine order for sexuality? It's contained in Genesis 1-2. Very clearly laid out for us. And if we look down to Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, here's what it says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God created man in his own image. He uniquely created man and woman 
in his image. Man was created from the dust of the ground. The, the Hebrew word is ish, I-S-H, ish. There was an ish created out of the dust of the ground. And then it tells us in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 22, where Eve came from, and she was Isha. She was I-S-H-A-H, Isha, because she came out of man. Look in chapter 2, verse 22. The Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and what? He brought her to the man. So whose idea was that? God's. He took man, Ish, he took Isha, a woman, and he brings her, he makes her out of the man and brings her to the man to be together. Do you see that? That is the divine order of creation for sexuality. Because he goes on to say in verse 24 of chapter 2, well, even verse 23, the man says, This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Where did he learn that from? God had to impress that upon him because he was asleep when the surgery happened. And he realizes. And he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So it's very crucial that we understand the divine order of creation was a man and a woman. For it to be any other way, we would have to rewrite this story of creation. Because nowhere in this creation account do we see two men or two women. That that is one opportunity. There's another alternative. There's another way for man to procreate and multiply and be fruitful and fill the earth. There isn't one here at all. And as we know, the two men and two ladies cannot procreate anyhow. The plumbing doesn't fit. So it's very clear that God has said it's one man, one woman, an exclusive relationship in marriage. And Adam recognizes this divine order for sexuality. And God creates in them a desire for sexuality toward one another. That came from God as well in creation. God's design for marriage. Marriage was designed by God to thoroughly join two image bearers in a permanent commitment enabling them to fulfill their purpose of filling and forming God's world. That comes out of the same-sex marriage book. Perfect. That was God's plan to be fruitful and multiply, and we cannot fill that out. An exclusive relationship. He goes on to say, neither proximity nor depth of affection nor a sincere commitment to love each other and stay together for life on its own, is enough to make a relationship marriage because it abandons, that definition abandons God's created order for sexual intimacy. It has to be between a man and a woman. He goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 13, 4, marriage then should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge, what, the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. He makes it very clear that this is an exclusive covenant commitment between a man and a woman and God. And the marriage bed is to be kept pure. 
And so, in other words, all other sexual activity outside that exclusive union of a man and a woman is wrong. It is sin before the eyes of a holy God. To have any other different arrangement, you would have to have a different creation account. And I think that is significant. And notice he says in in chapter 2, he told Adam in chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper, what? Suitable for him. One that fits, one that is complementary to the man. One that will allow him to fulfill Genesis 1, 28. To be fruitful and increase in number. Adam could not do that by himself. Eve could not do that by herself. It takes two. And it takes one man and one woman. And as ridiculous as we have to make that, that's what God says. But there are so many people who are embracing something else. Jesus and Paul both referred to this created order in the New Testament. Some people say, well, that's in the Old Testament. We don't follow the Old Testament anymore. However... Jesus quotes and refers back to this creation order, and so does Paul. In Matthew 19, and I don't have this on the overhead, I encourage you to look it up. Matthew 19, verses 3 to 5, Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And here's what Jesus said. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning... The creator made them male and female. He's going back to that divine created order that God put in place in the beginning. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Obviously, it was important to Jesus to share that with the Pharisees. Paul also shared it with the Ephesian church in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. He says, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united unto his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So here again, he's referring back as well to that divine created order. Homosexual unions, by their very nature, do not meet this definition, nor can they fulfill the procreative purpose. The importance of procreation as a part of the marriage covenant is clearly seen even in the Old Testament leveret laws. What was the leveret law? The leveret law was if someone died, a husband died, and the wife was childless, the brother was to marry his widowed sister-in-law and produce offspring for his brother. Why? To fulfill the Genesis 1 mandate. That's how important it was in the eyes of God that they fulfill the mandate of Genesis 1. And you can find that in Deuteronomy chapter 25. If you want to write it down, you can read it later. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. Now, here's a a, uh, hot question. Is homosexuality genetic? Is it genetic or natural does that make it morally okay? Did I read that right? Did I put that in there right? Um, if it is, 
Yes, if it is genetic or natural, does that make it morally okay? Again, we're not here primarily to talk about the orientation, but I will say this. In an article, one of the articles that I mentioned earlier, um, as of 2013, and I haven't talked to a doctor, I haven't talked to Dr. Lowen or anybody, but as of 2013, there was no genetic or DNA links that have been found for homosexuality. None. Whether or not it is genetic in some way is not a deciding factor on whether something is moral or not. Theoretically, someone might have a genetic disposition toward drugs or alcohol abuse or towards lying or kleptomania. This does not change the morality of those issues. The Bible tells us in Psalm 51.6 that we were shapen in iniquity in our mother's womb. We were born separated from God and therefore when we are born, we are born with a propensity to sin. Whether it's homosexuality, whether it's lying, whether it's kleptomania, like any of those, any of alcohol, anger, we can all have a predisposition to something, but we all have an inclination towards sin because we are born with a corrupt sin nature. But that doesn't say that we are not morally responsible for our choices because we are. We're still morally responsible for our choices before God. And God can give us victory over that. It is a lifelong process that we learn how to be identified in Jesus Christ. We, are, we should be learning as believers more and more how to be identified in Jesus Christ. Be more and more like him. Let me mention another teaching. We won't take the time to read it this morning, but in Genesis chapter 19, many of you know the story of Lot and how these men came and they were banging on the door and they wanted these guys to come out and it's an argument whether they were men or angels, but the point is they wanted to have sexual intimacy with them, which was definitely not in a context of a covenant of marriage. So it was vile, it was corrupt, it would have been a, a homosexual, physical intimacy. It would have been wrong. And God rained down sulfur and fire on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, some people will argue that the real sin there was the sin of inhospitality, if you can believe that. <laughs> they do have an argument from Ezekiel that refers to that. However, Ezekiel also refers to sexual immorality. It was Genesis 19 was really about violent gang rape. And the punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah, I do believe, had something to do with homosexuality. Listen to these verses in Isaiah 1, 9, and 10. Actually, many of the prophets referred then back to Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of horrible wickedness. Isaiah in 1.9.10 says this, Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Isaiah 3.9 says, The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Jeremiah 23, 14, And among the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen something horrible, 
They commit adultery and live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his wickedness. They are all like Sodom to me. The people of Jerusalem are like Gomorrah. And then in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 47 to 50, and here's where they get this idea of inhospitality. He says, you not only walked in their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways you soon, soon became more depraved than they. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They would take that verse and say, well, that's the real sin. It was in hospitality. However, let's keep reading. Because the next verse says, they were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Now, what does that word detestable mean? Some of you may have a different translation. The word is abomination. It is abomination. And here he is talking about a separate, specific sin that God has in mind, and it's not the sin of inhospitality. This same word for abomination, detestable practices, is also used in Leviticus twice. It is used in Leviticus 18.22, and here's what it says. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. It's an abomination before God. He says in Leviticus 20.13, If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable, an abomination. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, let's think a minute for a moment what Leviticus was. The children of Israel were delivered out of Egyptian bondage. They came out, and the book of Exodus records that story. Now they're building a community. And what do they do? God gives them laws. Now, here's the argument. Those laws are in Leviticus. We don't follow those laws anymore. That's the Old Testament. Those aren't for our day and age. That was for their culture and their time. That's not for our day and our culture. However, they've made a mistake because there's three types of laws. There are civil laws. There are priestly laws. And there are moral laws. The civil laws were put in place because Israel was to be a theocracy which means they were under God. And under God, God had given these commands and these laws and they were to follow them. We can't follow those to the letter of the law because we are not under a theocracy in America. There were priestly laws that were given. Those priestly laws were given about sacrifice and being holy to God. Those have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews talks about him being our high priest. He fulfilled the priestly law in the person of Christ. But there's moral laws. The moral laws are timeless. And do you know why they're timeless? They're timeless because they are rooted in the character 
and nature of God. So as long as God's around, those laws are in effect, and he's going to be around for a while. So they are forever. And the book of Leviticus was actually a holiness code for God's people to live holy lives. It was a holiness code. You know the word holiness occurs 87 times in the book of Leviticus. And what does it talk about in there? Holy people, holy clothes, holy land, holy place, holy utensils, holy days, holy laws. In other words, God is holy. And he demands his people to be holy, to follow his laws. If we went into the New Testament, even the New Testament talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. In Jude 7, here's what it says. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. This is how we know it's not just about inhospitality. <laughs> it says they gave themselves up to sexual immorality and per perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So that is some of the biblical things, and that's not all. We're going to get more into the New Testament next week. And I'm also going to give you some practical things of how do, we, how do we treat someone? How are we supposed to speak to someone? What if somebody comes into the church? What are we supposed to do? What if somebody invites you to a wedding? What are you supposed to do? What if you get into a dialogue with somebody? How should you get into that dialogue with that person? I want to talk about all those next week. I don't have time to do it now. But I do want to share this with you. If you are not convinced even of the biblical text... Would you consider even just a humanistic look for just a moment at the implications of homosexuality? Dr. Thomas Schmidt wrote a book called Straight and Narrow. In this book, he talks about the promiscuous lifestyle of those engaged in homosexuality. And here's what he says. 75% of homosexual men have more than 100 sexual partners during their lifetime. More than half of these partners are strangers. Only 8% of homosexual men and 7% of homosexual women ever have relationships lasting more than three years. I wonder why. He said, nobody seems to know the reason for the strange obsessive promiscuity Maybe they're trying to satisfy a deep psychological need by sexual encounters, and it's not fulfilling. Male homosexuals average over 20 partners a year. According to Dr. Schmidt, the number of homosexual men who experience anything like lifelong fidelity becomes, statistically speaking, he said, almost meaningless. Associated with this compulsive promiscuity is widespread drug use by homosexuals to heighten their sexual experiences. Homosexuals in general are three times as likely to be problem drinkers as the general population. Studies show that 47% 
of male homosexuals have a history of alcohol abuse and 51% have a history of drug abuse. There's also overwhelming evidence that certain mental disorders occur with a much higher frequency among homosexuals. For example, 40% of homosexual men have a history of major depression compared to 3% of the general population. Similarly, 37% of female homosexuals have a history of depression, which in turn leads to heightened suicide rates. Homosexuals are three times as likely to contemplate suicide as a general population. Homosexual men have a, an attempted suicide rate six times the rate of heterosexual men. And homosexual women attempt suicide twice as often as heterosexual women. So if that is true, looking at it even from a humanistic viewpoint, would we be in error to even warn someone who is engaged in that kind of self-destructive behavior? I mean, it's self-destructive. And God has given us a message. The Bible says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So maybe you're here this morning. Maybe there's somebody even here this morning that has an orientation toward that kind of lifestyle. I'm not going to sit and argue with you whether or not you have that orientation. You may have it. If you have that orientation, however, though, God can give you victory and deliver you. That's the good news. The good news. In fact, I will read this. I'll close with this one verse. I was going to save it for next week, but the incredible hope that we have in Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, here's what he says. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the next verse. And that is what some of you were. You've been delivered by the power of God. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So even if you are trapped in that lifestyle, I want you to know that the power of God can deliver you and cleanse you. From that sin or any other sin, he can do that for us. Let's stand for a word of prayer. As we stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we will finish this sermon next week, talk about some more practical things and look at a couple more passages because Romans has something to say. We'll look a little more at the Corinthians passage. We didn't even make it to the Romans passage, which is very clear in Scripture. But with your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning, I want to ask you, what are you dealing with in your life? You know, in light of the gospel story, do you have a pure conscience before God? Maybe your sin isn't homosexuality, maybe it's adultery or fornication or pornography or anger, or lying. 
or stealing. I don't, I don't know what you're dealing with. Pride. But I do know this. Sin is not allowed into heaven. God's not looking for perfection, but he is looking for those who have been cleansed by his blood. And I am so glad that we can be delivered from every sin by the power of Christ's blood, whatever it is. And I'm thankful for that. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I invite you to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, to acknowledge your sin. I'll be willing to meet with you afterwards. I'll be shaking hands in the back. But would you grab me by the hand? Would you wait? Would you talk to myself or someone else about your eternal destiny? It is the most important thing in the gospel story. Jesus died for all of us. And I'm glad that as a young boy, I came to realize I was a sinner. And I was headed for an eternal wrath and judgment of God. But Jesus' blood covers my sin. He covers your sin if you've confessed your sin to God. And it's not just confession, but it's repentance. Repentance is turning away from that sin then. Repentance is a, a total break from the sin and fleeing the other way. Like Paul said to Timothy, flee sexual immorality. So if you don't know Christ as your Savior, or maybe you're dealing with something and you need someone to pray with you, we'll be glad to do that. So please give us that opportunity to come alongside of you and help you. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.